Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, please help us grow. One of the easiest ways to help us is to leave our podcast a positive review. That moves us up in the popularity list and gets us more listeners. Also, tell a friend, tell family members about us. Tell them to head over to OhioMysteries.com and give us a listen. And I would like to thank two new Patreon supporters, Handout and Tanner Johnson. Thank you so much for contributing to our podcast. We really appreciate it. If you would like to help us out with our podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries and consider being a Patreon member. You will have access to bonus episodes as well as interviews with detectives on our Akron Beacon Journal cases. Thank you so much again, Tanner and Han. I really appreciate it. Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist who spent an award-winning 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Do you believe in a sixth sense? Is it possible our brains aren't reaching their full potential? And if they could, would we discover the ability to speak to spirits in another dimension, recall previous lives that we've lived, even heal ourselves of physical ailments? Edgar Cayce believed it, and in the first half of the 20th century, a lot of people believed in him. Still do. Even in the new millennium, He has many devotees and a center that carries on his work. Casey wasn't what you might envision a self-proclaimed clairvoyant to be. A man who many called the sleeping prophet was soft-spoken and humble, tried to keep his so-called gift a secret for years, and was a devout Christian and Sunday school teacher who refused to charge money for the readings he gave. He's also different in that he was never aware of the advice he was giving as he was giving it, because he would put himself into a trance, speak with a client while in that state, and then when he came out of it, have no idea what he said. His most frequent request was to diagnose an illness and provide a remedy. 
Sometimes he'd wake up, be read back what he said, and have no idea what it meant, though his clients seemed to. Later, some who came to analyze thousands of cases that were recorded insist Casey had an 85% success rate. Casey did more than diagnose illnesses. In his trance state, he did so many diverse things from astral projection to mediumship, things that have many now considering him the founder of the New Age movement. Casey was not from Ohio. He grew up next door in Kentucky. But historians divide his life into parts based on where he lived. And kind of reminds me like an artist. He had his Kentucky period. He also had a Selma, Alabama period. His Virginia Beach period. And he had his Dayton, Ohio period. And that makes him fair game for us. Edgar Casey was born in 1877 near the small town of Beverly, Kentucky. His parents were farmers and raised six children. Growing up, Casey always insisted there was another person in the house, the ghost of his dead grandpa. He also played with many imaginary friends. None of that bothered him. Far from it. He became accustomed to encountering unusual presences in his life. At the age of 10, he became engrossed in the Bible and read it from cover to cover, often while secreted away in a hut that he had built in the woods. One day, while he was out there in the woods, he said he encountered a woman with wings who told him she was there to answer a prayer and asked what he wanted most in the world. He told her he just wanted to help others. The next night, Casey was at home. And his father was angry because he hadn't been doing well at school. At one point, his dad knocked him from his chair onto the floor. While still on the floor, watching his dad walk away, Casey said he heard the voice of that woman with the wings telling him if he could go to sleep, that they could help him. He didn't know who they were, but decided it was worth a try. He put his head on his spelling book and fell asleep. And when he woke up, he said he knew everything that was in that book. From then on, he studied all his school subjects by sleeping on top of the textbooks. He soon became the top student in his class. There was another childhood incident worth sharing here because it was the first example of something Casey would become most famous for, the power to heal. As a boy, Casey injured his spine while playing ball and was in a lot of pain. One night, he dreamt he had a cure for his ailment. When he woke up, he followed the instructions from his dream and his back got better. Casey was doing more than well in school, but he had to drop out. His parents were poor, and when he reached high school age, he was needed to go to work. 
Eventually, he was made an apprentice in a photography studio, the field that would become his career for many years. Casey always nurtured his faith. He read the entire Bible once a year, taught Sunday school, and recruited missionaries. In addition to speaking to angels and hearing voices of dead relatives, he believed he could also see auras around people. He hoped and prayed fervently that these strange abilities came from the light and not the dark. He also suffered from chronic laryngitis, frequently losing most of his voice. One day in 1901, a traveling stage hypnotist came to town and offered to cure him. Casey agreed only if it were done in the office of the local throat specialist. And so, with both the hypnotist and the throat specialist on hand, Casey put himself into a trance where, to everyone's surprise, he could speak perfectly normal. Only when he was brought out of the trance did he lose his voice again. So Casey did what he did as that little boy with a spinal problem. He put himself back under to heal himself. Those who watched said they could see his throat turning red as if increased blood was flowing to the affected area. When Casey woke up this time, his voice was perfectly fine. For many years, his laryngitis would come back from time to time, but now Casey always knew how to fix it. Now, there was another hypnotist in town, a local one who became friends with Casey. His name was Al Lane. Al asked Casey if he could do for someone else what he did for himself. So Casey went under again, this time identifying some problems Lane was having and suggested cures for him. Casey woke up, not having any idea what he'd recommended, but Lane followed through and said the remedies worked. Casey always needed that guide when he went into a trance. Since he couldn't remember what he said, the guide needed to take notes and let him know. For a long time, Lane became this guide for him. Now, he suggested Casey begin offering his psychic diagnostic service to the public. But Casey was fearful of this idea. He had no medical training, no way of knowing if the words coming out of his unconscious mouth might actually cause someone harm. In his own words, he said, One dead patient is all I need to become a murderer. Casey was engaged at this time. His fiancée's name was Gertrude. And Gertrude didn't think it was a good idea either. But Eventually, he relented under two conditions. The service he provided would always be free, and that the very first time someone came to harm from his recommendation, he would stop forever. But he also couldn't stop thinking, if he had been given this gift by some divine entity, didn't that mean he was supposed to use it to help others and not just himself?
In 1902, Casey moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky, and he boarded with some young professionals, including a pair of doctors. While there, by the way, he invented a card game called Pit about commodities trading. I saw that you can still buy it today. It's sort of like a Uno card deck. And at this time, he and Gertrude also finally married. They would come to have three sons together, Hugh, Milton, and Edgar. Gertrude continued to disapprove of Casey giving his readings, and Casey still agonized over the morality of it all. But he kept doing it secretly. Every once in a while, word of it would leak out, and he'd get a little publicity. Lane, that hometown hypnotist friend, used to visit Casey when he lived at that boarding house with the doctors, and he once had let slip about Casey's paranormal talent. The doctors were intrigued and, with Casey's cooperation, set up a group of their colleagues to conduct experiments on Casey. Reportedly, the experiments were phenomenally favorable. Casey had to take their word for it. Whenever people would read back to him the medical information he offered, he'd just shake his head. He was completely oblivious to the meaning of some of the technical terms that his unconscious self had used. Whatever he was doing, it was enough to save the life of his wife. Gertrude came down with tuberculosis. As she declined, doctors wrote her office terminal and whispered to Casey, that she would die. Casey did what he did best. He went under, revealed a treatment routine that his wife diligently followed, and she recovered. Now, Casey was still doing photography all this time. That career got interrupted in 1906 and 1907 when a couple of fires burned down his studios, leading to bankruptcy. But even as his family struggled financially, Casey turned down every offer to turn his talent into a money-making enterprise. Then he met Wesley Ketchum. Ketchum was a doctor, a native of Lisbon, Ohio. He was a physician and a graduate of the Cleveland College of Homeopathic Medicine. After getting his degree, He ended up in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, where he hung out his shingle. Ketchum became fascinated with Casey, and then he couldn't shut up about him. He even, without Casey's knowledge, submitted a paper to the American Society of Clinical Research calling Casey a medical wonder. The New York Times followed up with a story, again, without Casey knowing about it, with a headline that said, Illiterate man becomes a doctor when hypnotized. Casey later revealed to another reporter how it all works, that when he sleeps, his mind actually visits another realm, a dream world, as you would have it, where everyone is connected and has access to universal knowledge. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. 
Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. As Casey's name became commonplace in medical circles, Ketchum convinced Casey to take him on as a partner. Casey still refused to collect money from clients, but Ketchum believed there were other ways to support the enterprise, including benefactors, donors, maybe university research grants. Unfortunately, Ketchum also came to admit to Casey that he was getting tips from him while he was in a trance to gamble on. In a heartbeat, Casey turned from Ketchum and walked away. He ended the partnership and took Gertrude to Selma, Alabama, where he took another photography job. Casey and Gertrude were in Selma for nine years, a time when his name and fame began to grow. While he never charged for a reading, he did accept donations so that he could begin doing it full-time. His family lived very simply and spartanly. His wife and eldest son took over the role of being his guide, supervising his trances and recording his words. Then he hired a secretary, 18-year-old Gladys Davis, who started recording his readings in shorthand and essentially became a new member of their family. Now, in 1923, Casey met Arthur Lammers, a wealthy printer who owned Dayton Photo Products in Dayton, Ohio. Lammers was a student of metaphysics, and Casey agreed to give him a reading. When Casey woke from his trance, Lammers revealed he had asked Casey questions about his past lives, and Casey answered them. Casey shook his head. Reincarnation was not accepted by Christian doctrine. Casey was sure that Lammers had misinterpreted whatever he said while he was unconscious. Lammers said it sure sounded like reincarnation to him. Let me give you a sample of what Casey told Lammers while he was in a trance. This was what was recorded by his new secretary, Gladys. We see the plan of development of those individuals set upon this plane meaning the ability to enter again into the presence of the Creator and become a full part of that creation. Insofar as this entity is concerned, this is the third appearance on this plane, and before this one, as a monk. We see glimpses in the life of the entity now 
as we're shown in the monk. The body is only the vehicle of the spirit and soul that waft through all times and ever remain the same. Well, Casey and Lammers agreed to disagree on what that all meant, but it was a discussion that led to a new move for the Casey family. In 1923, Lammers told Casey to come to Dayton and set up a metaphysical research office to continue exploring this notion of past lives. Casey gave it some thought. His wife Gertrude was skeptical but intrigued, and they agreed. That November, they moved to Dayton. They found a duplex apartment at 322 Grafton Avenue, and set up the Casey Psychic Institute in an office that they rented from the Phillips Hotel downtown at Main and Third Streets. There, he took many clients on journeys through their past lives. Casey, still the devout Christian and agonizing over what it meant, came to believe there must be some truth to it. Now, the Dayton period was also memorable, because the family struggled hard. Lammers had offered to supplement their income, which allowed Casey to operate his office. But Lammers stumbled into some financial problems himself and lost his printing business. He had to withdraw his support for Casey altogether. The Caseys and their secretary, Gladys, were stranded in Dayton and literally starving. Casey once wrote, Many were the days that we wondered when we left the house after breakfast whether there would be anything to eat when we returned in the evening. One day at the hotel office, Gladys told her boss she had never faced hunger before. And Casey said he didn't know what he was going to do because he had no food to take home to his wife and kids. During that conversation, there was a knock on the door. A man who said he was passing through town extended to Casey $25 in bills and wondered if he could have a reading. Casey didn't hesitate. I'll give you a reading right away, he said. But the stranger told him he'd come back later and walked away. Casey wondered if he'd just been visited by an angel. Casey shut down the office at the Phillips Hotel. He couldn't afford it, and he moved his readings to his Grafton Avenue apartment. But his days there were numbered. In 1925, two years after arriving in Dayton, Casey, while in a trance, said he'd been instructed to move to Virginia Beach, Virginia, that the Sands crystals had curative properties and he would learn more about its ability to promote healing. And so he did. In Virginia Beach, Casey reached a new level of professionalism with his work. He hired a few employees who joined a small team of volunteers. Benefactors always seemed to appear. Morton Blumenthal, then a young man who worked in the stock exchange in New York, bought the Casey's a house and became their partner. On May the 6th, 1927, 
the Association of National Investigations was born. They started by building a hospital where patients would come to be diagnosed and treated in an environment where researchers could also study the accuracy of Casey's readings. Some noted PhDs joined the effort, and a year later, the hospital complex opened, complete with a lecture hall and research library. Therapies at this time being suggested by Casey, they ran the gamut, from salt packs and hot compresses to magnetism, massage, essential oils, and mud baths. The aim was always to produce a healthy body, and the hospital quickly developed a months-long wait list. That was only supposed to be the beginning. The vision was for a really big complex. Blumenthal and his financial backers started making plans to build a university on the grounds, something that would rival other medical colleges. But after a few months, the whole business just fell apart. The Great Depression hit. Casey took his files back from the hospital, returned the home that Blumenthal had purchased for him, and struck out again on his own. For the next decade, Casey's new area of interest was working with study groups who wanted to learn to do what he did. In his altered state, Casey told the groups the purpose of life wasn't to be psychic, but to be a more spiritually aware and loving person. That by studying what he did, they could help bring light into a waiting world. In 1931, one of the larger study groups formed the Association for Research and Enlightenment, ARE. It was a simple effort and unpublicized. They raised money to build an office and library onto Casey's residence, and people of all religions were invited to join them. Casey said the goal was always to build something ancient and universal, not to be divisive that tapping one's inner higher self should make somebody stronger in their faith, not weaker. Then came World War II. In 1941, there wasn't a person in America untouched by sacrifice, tragedy, uncertainty. In 1942, the only biography written during Casey's lifetime was published. It was called there is a river, and it introduced Casey in an intimate way to more people and at a time when they needed him the most. Casey was overwhelmed by requests from people who wanted to know about their loved ones overseas, especially people who were missing in action. He started doing as many as eight readings a day. While in one of his trances, Casey admonished himself for doing too much and warned that if he didn't slow down, he was going to kill himself. When he woke up and his words were read back to him, he understood their meaning but ignored them. The next year, the year before World War II ended, he did more than 1,300 readings. Remember, he's got to put himself in a trance for each one of these. Finally, he collapsed. Gertrude talked him into taking some time off. 
perhaps going into the mountains of Virginia for some peaceful meditation and recovery. But the damage had already been done. In September of 1944, Casey suffered a stroke at the age of 67. He died four months later. Gertrude died three months after him. During his life, Casey's clients included Woodrow Wilson, Thomas Edison, Irving Berlin, George Gershwin. Dozens of books, maybe hundreds of books, have been written about him. In 1971, his sons published The Outer Limits of Edgar Casey's Power and claimed his readings had an 85% success rate. Wesley Ketchum, the Ohio physician who had that early partnership with Casey before getting caught gambling over what Casey had been telling him, he published a book, The Discovery of Edgar Casey, in 1964. That was four years before his own death. Of course, not everyone was a fan. Casey's trances offered some controversial ideas and sometimes inaccurate predictions. He accepted the existence of aliens, talked a lot about Atlantis, and predicted the second coming of Christ in 1998. Some modern researchers are convinced that his ideas came from books he was reading at the time and say efforts to quantify his successes that it's all hogwash because tests were never carried out in a properly vetted environment. Skeptic or not, there is no argument that Casey touched a lot of lives and convinced thousands, maybe millions, into accepting that there is more to life than we know. The Association for Research and Enlightenment, ARE, that I told you about, it's more than 90 years old and still going strong. They have a health center in Spahn, Virginia Beach, and it's located in that old hospital that they tried to establish before the Great Depression. They have a prison outreach program. They do study groups. They even have a podcast. If you're interested, you can learn more about it at their website, edgarcasey.org. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, Hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. I promise you will not be disappointed. Paula has put a lot of work into that page. You'll be able to find any of the episodes you are looking for, any of our Akron Beacon Journal crossovers. We'll see you here Wednesday, and then we'll see you back here next Sunday for another episode as well. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. 
So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.